Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about revolution as dissent. I've been recording podcasts here the last couple of months as if each one of them may be my last. It's not that I'm planning to shut the doors on inappropriate conversations or walk the earth, but I don't like the events that have happened here politically in the United States the last couple of months, and it would be irresponsible not to be preparing myself for the worst. More on that in a moment. First, though, probably worth calling out, that this is the first Inappropriate Conversations podcast I've recorded since September. Inappropriate Conversations number 203 was some history there, dealing with uh, Confederate monuments, among other things. And since that point in time, I've had a couple of episodes of Walk the Earth and a couple of blog post entries. One of those in November, one here very recently in December. Uh, the one in December, sports-related. I want to focus instead, though, on the blog post entry before that, from November 25th, called Speak Up or Be Silenced. And I also want to talk a little bit about the, the most recent recording of Walk the Earth. It would be a mistake for me to call Walk the Earth 48 as my favorite or in any way the best. It's just that it's an important one. And one that I, again, would be okay with, I suppose, if there was an interruption to the show created by... Um, ISP internet availability, or any other sorts of issues. I'm pleased with the work, I guess would be the way I'd put it. And I'm going to try my best to make this a, a comparable Inappropriate Conversations podcast, where I also might describe myself as being pleased with the work. If I had to pick one of the entire Walk the Earth questions that I'm maybe the most proud of, it would probably be Walk the Earth number 30. Uh, September 2015, recorded live in front of an audience, August 2015, answering the question of whether you can ever come back to this moment in history. And there's going to be a tie-up between that question and answer in Walk the Earth 30 and this particular inappropriate conversation show. I imagine I'll get there before the different drummer, but if not, the different drummer will bring me right to that point. But first, I feel like I really need to talk about net neutrality. The next to the most recent blog post up, the one from November 25th, is called Speak Up or Be Silenced. And it's talking about the very real danger that the access to the Internet of ordinary people, people who are not part of a multinational corporation or even a national corporation, people who don't really have their eyes set on monetizing whatever can be done in this open forum, could potentially be squeezed out. I describe the threat to net neutrality as a direct threat to me, or at least the potential threat to silence inappropriate conversations and walk the earth. Even to such extent as saying that my efforts to keep every single recorded podcast I've ever done in these formats up and available at www.inappropriateconversations.org with now a redirect from inappropriateconversations.com that the fact that all those shows are available on an RSS feed doesn't do anybody any good if throttling or other maneuvers are done by ISPs freed from what they might consider to be the burden of honesty, the burden of net neutrality. Uh, what good does it do you if you can't stream it? And what good does it do you if you can't stream it because somebody like me is not willing to, quote unquote, pay the price to ensure my access to not just a fast lane on the internet, but even an acceptable lane on the internet. I've done two blog posts in a row. That's a little bit unusual, but who knows? That might be the future direction that inappropriate conversations has to take, where it might be easier to post a blog entry than it would be to upload a sometimes fairly sizable MP3 file. So what I want us to do is to think about this from a couple of different perspectives, when it comes to the question of whether whether we're going to speak up, how far do we have to be pushed in order to speak up? A little more than a year ago, in fact, probably a year and a couple of months ago, I released a podcast called Constitutional Crisis, and it wasn't hyperbole. I believe that we were facing a constitutional crisis, but only just this year have I begun to see other people post things like, 
hey, maybe this dream of an American democracy was over when Mitch McConnell was holding a Supreme Court seat hostage, not allowing Obama to fill that seat for the longest point in peacetime American history. In other words, the longest time a vacancy has been held on the Supreme Court with the possible exception of the U.S. Civil War. And we didn't do anything about it. We didn't go to the streets at that point. We didn't protest at that point. We didn't flood Twitter and Facebook and other social media avenues on the Internet with the freedom to speak while, at the time, net neutrality's availability made that freedom to speech tangible and real. So will we speak up now? Will we speak up now when the failed Kansas economic experiment of giving of declaring corporations to be people, uh, ignoring the way they use uh, money inappropriately to bribe government officials in one way or another as some sort of quote-unquote free speech, and and that exercise through taxation that's being, uh, well, it's passed both houses of Congress and now is in a reconciliation kind of mode where the two houses have to get together and agree on a single bill that they can then both vote on and pass to Trump, guaranteeing that if there's a single dime that can be saved by Trump for his own personal you know, you know, taxes or his family's taxes, he will sign anything, no matter how destructive it is long term to our country's good, that if we're not going to speak up now, when will we? Because dissent is that act of disagreeing. It's that act of interjecting ourselves into the conversation. And if we don't do it now, will the speech we ultimately have to raise to save our country be completely stifled? And this is the end of the America that our founding fathers envisioned. Or will it be a bloody revolution instead? Rush has lyrics uh, written by Neil Peart. Uh, when the dragons grow too mighty to slay with pen or sword, I grow weary of the battle and the storm I walk toward. If we can fight this with pen or with voice, or we might have to fight it in a much more difficult way, when we actually have to defend ourselves against whatever, what fresh hell is this coming out of the current administration, where if more judges are appointed in the manner that they've been appointed so far, questionably literate judges, I would argue, at least from a bar association perspective, it may not be long before the checks and balances have broken down so completely that there will be nowhere to turn. Now, this isn't a gloom and doom episode. I'm here to encourage us to raise that voice, to speak as I spoke a year ago about how important it was that Merrick Garland either be confirmed or rejected and how unacceptable it was for someone to be playing games with that. You know, the at the time that the Constitution was approved, and the framers of that document were considering whether or not the president might have to just appoint a judge to the court because the Senate was unable to convene, that they were not able to come back from a recess and a recess appointment might be necessary. I think sometimes as American citizens, we look back on that and we say, well, how long was it in the horse and buggy days for uh, people to come from even just the eastern time zone of our country to get together at a place like New York City or Washington, D.C. to convene and have a quorum uh, for senators to provide their advice and consent? And I think we probably have these these foolish, romantic notions that the Senate was not in session for months and months, years even, perhaps. But actually, the truth is, most of those recesses were four months long or six months long. There may be a rare case where it was up to eight, something along those lines. Certainly shorter in duration than the distance of time between when President Obama put Merrick Garland's name forward and when President Obama left office the following January. There was plenty of time. And if the framers of the Constitution said, hey, if the Senate can't act because they can't get together in their normal four or five months span, maybe if six months are going to go by, we should just have a recess appointment and the president should just put the person on the court and then the Senate can confirm that individual when they do get back. Um, we didn't do that. That would have been an extraordinary move from Barack Obama, who I think was probably more worried about his legacy by trying to avoid those kinds of extraordinary moves that people could point to and question whether he actually was the kind of constitutional law scholar willing to follow the U.S. Constitution. But I believe that he probably could have. The real fine line there is trying to, to decide where the, where the difference is between a Senate who's unable to provide advice and consent because of the geographical challenges of travel 
at that point in U.S. history, and the Senate being unwilling. And why didn't we look at that unwillingness to provide advice and consent as something that we might go to the streets and protest about? Why were there not a million people on the Washington Mall over that issue? Will there be a million people on the Washington Mall over the current proposed tax changes and what it means to health insurance and what it means to a woman's right to control her own body uh, and get appropriate reproductive medical care? All of the things that have been sort of nestled inside this bill, a kickback to the current sitting Secretary of Education toward one particular educational body that she has a financial interest in. Would we go to the streets for this? Maybe what we should do is go to at least the virtual and metaphorical streets over net neutrality. I find it ironic that in this era of fake news, that most of the, most of the campaign in favor of the FCC's decision to back away from net neutrality seem to have been fabricated seem to have come from uh, fake news sources, from you know, from Russian troll farms and other you know, suspect and dubious you know, avenues. And there does seem to be a great groundswell of people who have spoken up, who've offered their word, and have, have contributed to the conversation on defending net neutrality. The downside of the controversy is that the FCC has made it more difficult for people to actually raise their voices. And this is the reason why I want to call people to the inappropriateconversations.org blog post called Speak Up or Be Silent from November of this year. Because in there, I outline in some detail exactly the steps you need to do in order to be heard as someone who would like to defend free access to the airwaves, which again, might be the best way to protest today. And it's unsurprising, I suppose, that this current presidential administration wouldn't mind shutting down that avenue of public discourse. This is a very anti-populist administration for a group of people, a very elitist administration, for people who ran on a ticket that presumed to be speaking on behalf of the everyman and populism. FCC.gov is a website, and once at that website, and I've got a link to it, there is a very wonky and specific question or two that have to be answered in order for you to even, even speak your mind on the issue. You have to enter in a proceeding number, and that specific number is 17-108. If you don't know that, if you can't search or intuit it, then your voice will be silenced. You won't have the ability to offer your opinion. I even found that entering my name was difficult because, especially on a mobile device, it didn't want you to just be able to enter that information and move forward. I had to, there's extra steps you had to take to be fully entered. I just got frustrated, switched and sat down at a PC and used a real keyboard to do the work. Careful and proper information related to email address is very important. They do say that you're, um, as a citizen who speaks publicly on an issue, you're City-state address information will be available online, will be publicly available. These things I think we have to overcome just to get down to the point of being able to enter in on brief comments something to the effect of, I support Title II oversight of ISPs. I don't want Internet service providers to be handled through any other means other than Title II because that is net neutrality. It's basically saying that we're not better served if we live in a world where every time you switch gas companies or electric companies, you have to pay thousands of dollars for someone to come in and basically do a remodel of your home because every single gas company and electric company has the right to manage their own electrical outlets with their own frequencies. As if you were suddenly transported to England or Europe every time a new electric company moved in and uh, your coverage switched. Uh, the compact disc was phenomenally successful, in part because you didn't have to buy all the music again if you bought a different brand of player. These are concepts which are common sense, and which so many people who claim to be common sense conservatives in particular seem to be just simply mystified by. Our utilities, in other words, to your average John Birch Society member, or the modern equivalent thereof, must look like socialism of the rankest form. And yet, we have standards for how electricity moves from place to place. We have standards for gas and so forth. 
and we have standards for the public airwaves, or at least at one time we did, and the internet should be as free, as democratized as that. If you've got the best material, you'll find your audience. The threat here is you may have the best material and not be able to find your audience if someone like an internet service provider decides that their ownership of the telephone line, so to speak, means that they have some sort of say or control over what you can say on the telephone. So one pitch here is that we need to be standing up for net neutrality. The other one is that we need to be standing up and speaking out about a government that is insisting on doing its business in secret. And by in secret, I mean insisting on doing its business in secret from itself. This tax bill that passed was passed by all accounts with no, you know, conflicting testimony from anybody that I've heard that it essentially was being printed at the time that the vote was being arranged, that the document was at such a length that it couldn't possibly have been read, that changes were being made by scribbling things into the margin, pointing arrows, Xing out pages in some cases, lining through pages in the other, which may or may not be this, the equivalent of an exit. What's the difference between Xing out a page and lining out a page? Does it mean the same thing? Does it mean the page is gone or does it mean something different? The process itself reveals a complete lack of respect for things like literacy and due process. Again, there is a lot of indication that very few people who voted for this bill had even read it had even had an opportunity to read it, including some Republican leaders in Congress poo-pooing the idea that that was important. There'll be plenty of time to read the bill after the vote. This is a problem. This is government gone completely amok. It's actually the exact kind of things that we used to hear, you know, paranoid fairy tales about. It's worse than the worst fantasies of liberal-hating conservatives being done by people who allege themselves to be political conservatives. Even to such an extent that like with people who are disabled being dragged out of their wheelchairs and arrested because they chose to go into the halls of Congress to protest the proposed changes to health insurance and health care access because they weren't being heard on the street, they weren't being heard on the sidewalk, their, their phone calls weren't being answered. I did not receive any reply in any form whatsoever to any of the phone calls I made to the senators who represent me, for example. So, like that, one of the people who voted for this tax bill was a Nevada Republican who is up for re-election next year. He had a town hall this past weekend where a cancer patient wanted to raise a question and ask specific things about the health care changes that have been introduced into this tax bill, not to mention the tax burden being shifted to middle and lower class people and away from corporations. And basically he had security drag her out of the town hall. He didn't want to answer the question, didn't feel he had to answer the question because we have created a country through our own unwillingness to raise a voice of dissent where elected representatives feel far more beholden to lobbyists and special interest groups with big pockets, deep pockets, and a pen ready to scribble across the checkbook than they are to any individual constituent. A constituent in Nevada telling that senator that her life was being directly placed in danger by the imminent threat that she would lose her health care insurance and her access to anything other than indigent care. And if you listen to the conversation, especially in the American Southwest, there's more than a few people who claim to be politically conservative and Christian who would suggest that if uninsured, you ought not have access to the hospital or even the emergency room. Let me share a quick story on this from verifiedpolitics.com, written by Vinny Longobardo. And it, it's an opinion piece with the headline, Republican senator who voted for tax bill just ejected a terminally ill cancer patient. This was published on December 3rd, 2017. It doesn't get any lower than this. One day after voting in favor of the Republican tax plan that eliminates the individual mandate requiring Americans to purchase health insurance and essentially undermines the basis for Obamacare, Senator Dean Heller, Republican of Nevada, appeared at the Libre Forum in Las Vegas and faced a crowd demanding answers. They wanted answers to how Senator Heller could possibly vote for a bill that not only transfers wealth from their middle-class pockets to the vaults of the ultra-rich, who don't actually need more money than they already have, 
They wanted answers to how Senator Heller could possibly vote for a bill that cuts taxes for corporations that are already earning record profits and stashing their cash overseas to avoid paying their fair share. They wanted answers to how Senator Heller could possibly vote for a bill that would lead to the same result as the skinny Obamacare repeal that was overwhelmingly rejected by the majority of Americans according to every poll on the subject, yet was defeated by only one vote in the Senate before it was shamelessly tacked onto the tax quote cut unquote bill and surreptitiously passed as part of an overall package of legislation that was equally unpopular with voters. The attendees wanted answers. In particular, one constituent with stage four cancer wanted to know why he was voting for her to lose her health care. It would be a legitimate question even from a healthy person, but as the video that was attached to this uh, verifiedpolitics.com website shows, it's an even more important question for somebody with her diagnosis. As she says, without it, I will die. Heller's response? While he mumbles feeble excuses, his security is poised to eject the woman asking the questions from the forum. This is nothing but pure cowardice from a senator who is willing to make a conscious decision to support a bill that will hurt the vast majority of his Nevada constituents, but can't take the heat for putting the entrance of Republican donors like Sheldon Adelson and the Libre Forum sponsors, the Koch brothers, above everyone else. In a nutshell, if we're not willing to protest this, what are we willing to protest? I know there has been fewer than normal, for want of a better word, inappropriate conversations podcast this year. The format has gone to monthly, and at times it hasn't exactly even been monthly. And that if you look over the past, say, 10, 11 months, there have been as many episodes related to trying to inspire dissent than anything else. A half dozen music-inspired music, music of protest, music of dissent, music, music of resistance, music even calling for revolution. And maybe that's where I'm heading here. If we don't speak now, when will we speak? And if we wait too long, will it be too late? So how does this fit in with my original idea? Because this revolution as dissent topic has been part of the Inappropriate Conversations game plan for quite some time. It's been part of the plan from before the Trump presidency, before the 2016 elections. My focus then was trying to honor, through the different drummer, what might be the finest film acting performance I've ever seen. It's certainly the finest film acting performance I've seen in my lifetime from an American actress. And that will be our different drummer. But as we get toward her, recognizing Diane Keaton in this unique role, uh, one that I would put at least for one film performance, and really it's not just one, on a pedestal with the Meryl Streeps of the world, her contemporaries, and the Katherine Hepburns of the world, uh, people who inspired her to become an actress in the first place, I first want to talk about moments in the film itself. Because when I recorded Walk the Earth 30 and was dealing with that question of whether you can ever come back to this moment in history. That was a line of dialogue directly taken from the 1981 film Reds. Warren Beatty had had this movie in mind since the mid-1970s and had Diane Keaton in mind as his lead actress, the co-lead of the film, from the very start. It took from probably 1977 to 1981 to get the film made. And by all accounts, the film uh, covered the gamut from during their romantic relationship, Keaton and Beatty, to the end of their relationship, and in some corners suggesting that the stress of making a three-hour and 18-minute film might have, might have done in that relationship. But the film is dialogue-heavy. So we're talking about a three-hour and 18-minute film with an enormous script, featuring a lead actress notorious for memorizing not just her parts, but the parts of all the actors and performers in the script. So the stress level goes without saying. And I'm not suggesting for one moment, even though I believe that Reds was the best movie of 1981 and among the best movies made in my lifetime, and certainly one of my five favorites if I had to nail myself down to just five favorites, it goes to the Desert Island with me if a Desert Island collection includes DVDs or Blu-rays. You see, I've owned Reds on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray now. Haven't owned it on Laserdisc, or maybe I have. Maybe that's the other format 
We may get to Laserdisc next year if the Inappropriate Conversations podcast is permitted to persist. But on this topic in particular, Red speaks volumes. It's dealing with a period in the biography of the author John Reed from the early 19-teens all the way to you know his death and chronicles the Russian Revolution, the process after that revolution, but also how the United States handled the threat of World War I and the threat of communism at the time. And for all the wonderful lines of dialogue from an incredible cast, I mean, Beatty did a fantastic job managing the performances of really everybody but himself. Not that his work is subpar, but the work of those around him is by far more impressive. Uh, he had Academy Award nominations up and down for supporting actor and actress, for best actor and best actress. And Maureen Stapleton won best supporting actress for her part. I'll get to Diane Keaton in just a little bit. But first I want to share this line of dialogue near the end of the film. I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say that moments in history happen pretty much as the history suggests they did, or to say that a biopic that begins with the main character as an adult is likely to end in his death. If there's spoilers there, I apologize. But I want to share as much of this line of dialogue as possible, because what has happened near the end of the film is that the communist government in Russia is still fighting battles on multiple fronts from the White Army, as it was called, the anti-communist forces. And so at the same time that the new fledgling Soviet government was trying to establish its arguably new policies, it was also defending itself and trying to establish even its borders. And during one moment of going into the southern part of what is now currently considered the former Soviet um, Union, to preach this new governmental system, this new idea, John Reed writes a speech talking specifically, as he did throughout, about uh, class war and um, unions and the important the importance of the means of production being in the hands of the people who actually do the work. Those concepts, tired though they may seem now, they were new at the time. But Reed objects to the uh, the propaganda bureau, for want of a better word, switching out class war for holy war in one of his speeches. And as he catches that in translation, feeling under the weather, being, being ill, being ill with what the condition that would ultimately kill him, he challenges Gregory Zinoviev, the character who actually introduced the question earlier in the film of whether you can ever come back to this moment in history, challenges him for taking liberties with what he'd written, for switching those words, and an argument they had between the two of them about the meaning of propaganda. Zinoviev asks him, aren't you propagandist enough to utilize what moves people most? To which Reed answers, I'm propagandist enough to utilize the truth. Here's the balance of Reed's speech, though, defending his integrity as a writer, and in some ways, because he was a communist, trying to defend the revolution through defending his integrity as a writer. He says this, Zinoviev, if you don't think a man can be an individual and be true to the collective, or speak for his own country and the international at the same time, or love his wife and still be faithful to the revolution, then you don't have a self to give. When you separate a man from what he loves most, what you do is purge what's unique. And when you purge what's unique in him, you purge dissent. And when you purge dissent, you kill the revolution. Revolution is dissent. That is the culminating, final, political moment in the 1981 film Reds, making the argument that revolution is dissent. Or, applying a transitive principle of sort, dissent is revolution. Dissent in this case is a non-bloody form of revolution. The violence, if there is to be confrontation, in the form of words, in the form of speech, in the form of civil disobedience, before it becomes necessary to do something more drastic, to reestablish the checks and balances that our founding fathers intended for us to be operating with. There's never been a situation that I can think of, in certainly not in my lifetime, and not that I can think of in American history, where we have been this close to completely losing our constitutional minds. And the question is, are we going to speak up about it? Are we willing to express a little bit of dissent now to solve problems later? 
if we're not going to go to the streets over this, when will we? Because if we don't go to the streets to defend concepts like net neutrality, we may find that access to social media that has fueled other popular populist uprisings, other moments where the common citizen said no to a totalitarian regime, one of the tools that they had available to them that's under threat right now is the ability to use the internet openly. And the means of production, for want of a better word, again, to use what is now certainly a tired old phrase, have absolutely shifted more than at any point in my lifetime away from the common person's ability to manage and survive to those who already have so much money that they're hiding it in overseas accounts. They're hiding it in shelter. They're not declaring income they actually have to avoid paying taxes on it. Listen, I am a capitalist, living in a capitalist country, but I'm not a cultist about it. I recognize that there are common sense moments where you have to look at things in a straightforward way. couple of concepts before I go to the different drummer and finish up my admiration for the film Reds. One is that the minimum wage was, when I was a kid, I was probably making about $3.50, give or take, when I started. And, you know, it might have been up to 6 or $7 at some point. But if that same minimum wage, based on the economy at the time and cost of living changes now, if you apply all that across the board, you're going to end up in a situation where your minimum wage would be $15, $18 an hour. So what we called minimum wage then and what we call minimum wage now, we have to balance and assess those things if we're really going to pretend that they're equal. On the day that I'm recording this, Iowa Republican Senator Charles Grassley tried to defend his vote in favor of what some people are calling the tax scam by suggesting that it would be wrong to put more money in the pockets of people who are lower income and doing nothing to fix their situation. They just blow all their money on booze and movies. This was essentially his point of view. And of course, it's an easy thing for a senator to say something like that. If that senator is getting millions of dollars in donations from people who expect him to vote a certain way, and he actually turns around and votes that way. But here's the reality at the end of the day. Our economy is fueled by people buying things. And if you give $1,000 to somebody who already has millions in the bank, that 1000 is just going to put on, on top of the heap of that large stack of money. If that is in a Swiss bank account or the Grand Cayman Islands, or for that matter, even some you know IRA or some other account in America, it's not going to get spent buying things. But you take the average person who's making thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, in some cases twenty thousand dollars a year, and you through the way you manage the tax code, give them that thousand dollars. Well that thousand dollars is going to get spent. It's going to get spent on um food and medicine that has not been properly bought for months because they can't afford to do it. Even if that money was spent on a movie with popcorn, that movie is going straight in the economy. Because it is going to, by and large, bounce off that lower to lower middle class individual and hit local businesses that provide services and goods for that middle class to lower middle class individual in a way that it never would if you gave 10 times that money or 100 times that money to somebody who doesn't have to do anything. We've established in case studies like the state of Kansas that trickle down economics not only doesn't work, it's failed spectacularly in the modern era, and that raises, I think, the mistaken notion that it worked at all 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's a failed policy with recent demonstrable experiments of its failure. And for anyone to be calling out that that's the solution going forward, or that somehow putting money or protecting the money that people at the lowest end of the spectrum actually have is somehow insignificant or unimportant to our economy doesn't understand the the entire idea of stimulation. Job growth can only stimulate the economy if that job growth turns into wages that then are spent on local goods and services. And there's the big mess. There was a video with a set of interviews of people who might be considered industry leaders asked if they got this huge tax break, would they hire more workers? 
and not a single one of them rose their hand and spoke up. The fact of the matter is, the opposite would be more likely to occur. Let me begin by restating that this Different Drummer segment is an unabashed recommendation for the movie Reds. I've gone to look at the IMDb page for that film, specifically to the quotes, to see whether or not the quotes section of IMDb has adequately captured Diane Keaton's performance as Louise Bryant, and there are very few quotes from her at all. In IMDb, as of the time I'm recording, the film Reds has a 7.5 rating um, out of 10, I feel like that's low by at least two full points. But the interesting point I'd like to make is that anyone who's watched the film from the perspective of being a Warren Beatty movie about a historical figure that Warren Beatty thought would be interesting to put on screen is missing more than half the film. Because to me, when I watch the movie, the Diane Keaton interactions, not just with Warren Beatty, but with other characters, the Maureen Stapleton character, or Eugene O'Neill as presented by Jack Nicholson, are among the most interesting and captivating moments of the film, and they're, again, criminally underrepresented. But first, it's a different drummer segment, so as I often do, let me simply go to Wikipedia for introductory biographical material. Diane Keaton is an American film actress, director, and producer. She began her career on stage and made her screen debut in 1970. Her first major film role was Kay Adams Corleone in the Godfather films, but the films that shaped her early career were those with her director and co-star Woody Allen. Beginning with Play It Again, Sam, in 1972, her next two films with Allen, Sleeper, 1973, Love and Death, 1975, established her as a comic actor, and her fourth, Annie Hall, 1977, won her the Academy Award for Best Actress. She's been nominated for at least three other Academy Awards. I believe this one is her only win. She's also gone on to direct, but I want to jump to the to the end of this introductory section and call out the other reasons why Keaton qualifies as a different drummer. And it's that same diversification effect. Keaton's films have earned a cumulative gross of over $1.1 billion in North America. In addition to acting, she's also a photographer, real estate developer, author, and occasional singer. So, and you get that diversity. In fact, probably one of the areas from doing research on this that I feel I've explored the least and might be the most interested in is her work as a photographer and an editor of, of, of photographic anthologies. She gets this from her mother, who also was an accomplished photographer. Typical with actors, it probably makes sense to do a quick run-through of IMDb from the perspective of the shows that I've seen and maybe some of my impressions about those movies. And if I ignore television, and there is some television there that she's done that I'm familiar with as an actress, I'm sure I've seen episodes that she appeared in for Love American Style and Night Gallery, the FBI, Mannix. I was a kid watching television in the early 70s, and those were among her earliest credits as a as an actress on TV slash film. But what I would like to note kind of more than anything else is how relatively few of her films in this extensive you know resume I've actually seen. When I was naming early on um, an actress like Elizabeth Shue, it was because of the sheer number, the high percentage of her films I'd seen. And the opposite is true here. And I will try to some degree to explore some of the inconsistency there because it's real and there's a reason for it. I have seen and would recommend The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, uh, Sleeper, Annie Hall, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Reds, of course, Shoot the Moon. I've also seen more recently, and by more recently I mean like the last, uh, call it 20 years, uh, Baby Boom, Look Who's Talking Now, Look Who's Talking Now 2, <laughs> both of them I guess. Something's Gotta Give. But, you know, I feel like I have not properly seen movies like The First Wives Club in order to make a recommendation. There are more that I've seen that I haven't named here. Crimes of the Heart comes to mind. Uh, her uh, vocal acting here recently on Finding Dory. But more of these movies than not, I have not seen. And, you know, to her credit, she's been a part of films that have been phenomenally successful. But if you read the reviews of the films that are listed here, movies like The Little Drummer Girl, for example, there's negative reviews in place as well. Even for her directorial credits, the reviews have been mixed. I have a copy on Laserdisc, as a matter of fact, of Heaven, 
the documentary Corky documentary she directed about the concept of an afterlife. I'm quite sure I have somewhere uh, a collection, or at least I have had a collection of Twin Peaks that would have included her second season episode as a director. Um, And interestingly, an episode that isn't one of those ones that you'd point to and say, well, I remember that one. It was incredible. But that has gotten a lot of credit for being the kind of television episode on a story that tells an arc across multiple seasons where she was dealing with four plot lines at once, moving them forward, only resolving some and not the rest, and keeping them balanced with each other in you know, an hour. Call it 44 minutes of television. And um, one of the uh, fiction films that she directed, Unsung Heroes. Again, mixed reviews. Having said that, when Keaton was given a recent Lifetime Achievement Award from American Film Institute, it was obvious, as it so often is when you get that retrospective and introductions and testimonials, just how incredibly earned her recognition by that group was. We take for granted what being an actress in America was all about in the 1970s when Keaton was first honing her craft on the big screen. For the movie uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, I'd love to share just one quick moment, one quick review. So I think it provides an interesting perspective on her filmography and what that filmography meant at the time. From Wikipedia, this is an uncredited review from Time Magazine in 1977, covering the film Looking for Mr. Goodbar, quoting, A male actor can fly a plane, fight a war, shoot a bad man, pull off a sting, impersonate a big cheese in business or politics. Men are presumed to be interesting. A female can play a wife, play a whore, get pregnant, lose her baby, and, um, let's see, women are presumed to be dull. Now, a determined trend spotter can point to a handful of new films whose makers think that women can bear the dramatic weight of a production alone or virtually so. Then there is Diane Keaton in Looking for Mr. Goodbar. As Teresa Dunn, Keaton dominates this raunchy, risky, violent dramatization of Judith Rossner's 1975 novel about a schoolteacher who cruises singles bars. They, at least Time Magazine crediting Keaton directly as a turning point between the almost ignored character that she, uh, you know, appeared in in her first really notable role in The Godfather to just five or six years later, kind of changing the landscape for female actors in a dramatic role. And yet most people will give her the most credit for Annie Hall, her Academy Award-winning performance, and what that does instead for comic performance. So... Probably feels weird to talk about somebody who's been parts of movies that have sold more than a billion dollars in tickets as an underrated performer. But my Different Drummer segment, this nod to Diane Keaton, is 100% about how underrated she is. Going back to the movie Reds, I don't think I've seen a film performance as just as complete and as stunning as that by a male or female actor, certainly if you limit yourself to the American film system, whether you call that Hollywood or something else. Reds is a film that was made sort of over and above, within but out, outside of Hollywood to some degree. But you know what I mean. American film. I think one of the reasons that I can name dozens of movies by Elizabeth Shue that I've seen and maybe more than once have seen is that I find her incredibly attractive. There's lots of things about her, including just straight physical attraction. I've done a different drummer nod in a past inappropriate conversation to Anita Ekberg, a Swedish actress, and was pretty forthright about saying that what she looks like has a heck of a lot to do. The impression that she left on me was based on visual cues, in other words. This is not true of Diane Keaton. Now, perhaps I saw the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar at slightly too young of an age. I was still in high school when I finally got a chance to see it on maybe HBO at a party at someone else's house because my parents were way too conservative to run the risk of me seeing something like Looking Mister for Mr. Goodbar on HBO within my own home. But that's not a movie that would you would look at Diane Keaton and say, oh, wow, that's an unbelievably sexually attractive woman. The whole point of the role is to be a mixture of of sympathy and revulsion in many ways. And uh, so that wouldn't be the one. And, and I per- personally didn't come away from Annie Hall with a sense that 
I've got to watch all these other movies that she's in, uh, even if they're movies that I might not otherwise be the right target audience for, the right age for. Uh, Woody Allen films in the 70s when I was still just a teenager, for example. But when I saw the movie Reds, it occurred to me that even though it still might not be true on what we could call a sexual attraction level, Diane Keaton became a very beautiful woman in the course of that movie because her performance of that character rendered a flawed but incredibly beautiful character. A complete human being was rendered on screen. I find it ironic that in 1981, when Keaton was... There's two things I wanted watching the Academy Awards telecast in 1982. One of them was for Reds to win Best Picture, for at the very least Warren Beatty to win Best Director. The Best Director Oscar happened. And the other one was for Diane Keaton to win Best Actress. And I'm not exactly sure which one I would have picked if I was told you can only have one of those things. The one I probably felt the most confident in was Diane Keaton winning Best Actress. I just simply had never seen a performance like this in my lifetime. It was everything you would expect from a dramatic performance, including being given some of the best lines, and ironically, those lines not appearing. It's very hard to search quotes for Reds online. You end up in some of the strangest places, like the American Party for Labor reviewing a movie made, you know, almost, you know, 35 years ago or whatever. The irony is that Keaton cites Katherine Hepburn as one of her inspirations to become an actress. And Katherine Hepburn won what I consider to be something of a lifetime achievement Oscar for her performance in On Golden Pond. Now don't get me wrong. On Golden Pond, very fine film. Henry Fonda, great performance. His daughter did fine in the movie as well. Dabney Coleman, was, he held his own. He was good. Katherine Hepburn was solid, but I think probably the best performance in the movie was... Henry Fonda, and I didn't have any problem if Henry Fonda won Best Actor and Diane Keaton won Best Actress, but Diane Keaton lost that Academy Award, probably the most deserved Academy Award of her entire acting career, to her idol, which, you know, so it goes. I would simply say that whether you can ever come back to this moment in history has a lot to do with whether we're going to stand up and speak up and defend not just our rights, but our access to those rights. Will we recognize that it's okay to call something wrong? It's okay to insist that things be done in a proper way. And we've gone through basically ten and a half months of one complete act of misbehavior followed upon another from the administrative branch of our government with a Congress controlled by the same political party as that administrative branch, complicit in the misbehaviors of that branch, and actually misbehaving even before the presidential election of 2016 with the you know stonewalling of a Supreme Court vacancy being filled by the president serving at the time of that vacancy. We've been given an example in many films, and I would just cite Reds as one of them, of what it means to stand up for what's right. And even if you watch the movie and share my perspective that the political worldview, the form of government that John Reed was seeking to defend, was fatally flawed and doomed to fail. And basically 80 years after the the plot of that film, that inevitable failure occurred. It's just that, for me, totalitarianism is a bigger issue than any of the other isms. This isn't about capitalism versus communism versus socialism. At the end of the day, this is about totalitarianism. And silently sitting on the sidelines waiting for someone else to solve the problem is not going to get it done. At this point, this inappropriate conversation seems unlikely to have any promos. Feels like it's going to be different drummer music with the different drummers separated in a somewhat traditional way for the Inappropriate Conversations podcast. Topic first, then different drummer, then the conclusion. I'm okay with that. Again, I don't believe this is going to be the last Inappropriate Conversations podcast, but I do believe that I am currently living in a point in time in American history where I've got to make recordings as if they might just be. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I have a Twitter, 
handle IC underscore Greg is Twitter for inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth. The two podcasts have separate pages on Facebook. One for inappropriate conversations, listed as a cause, feels more like a cause than ever these days, and one for Walk the Earth. I also can be found on SoundCloud, IC underscore Greg. I've been derelict in continuing the process of placing audio clips of the oldest and appropriate conversations, working my way through the hundreds, getting close to where we are right now in the low 200s. I do intend to resume that as long as either SoundCloud is available to me or the Internet itself is available to me. And as always, inappropriate conversations can be found on iTunes, listed both for politics and religion, I reckon, and also at Stitcher, stitcher Stitcher.com. Thanks for listening. show is a proud member of the pride 48 podcasting network check out other great podcasts at pride 48.com slash shows